outsourcing gets a bad rap and you know the gig economy i think sometimes gets a bad rap as well but truly global workforces i think is a particularly interesting premise if we're talking about solving real world problems in the african context i think that that is a way forward that is meaningful Well, where are the income generating opportunities going to come from or where are the jobs going to come from, right? I think it's a really important question in the context, again, of like global population. Welcome to season three of the Beyond Capital podcast. People always ask me, what is the secret sauce to marrying profit with purpose? We're back for another season to bring you the stories of successful leaders that are building and scaling purpose-driven businesses. I'm Eva Yazari, general partner of Beyond Capital Ventures. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Scoot. Together, Eva and I have built and invested in businesses worth millions. We wanna show you how conscious leadership translates impact in all facets of a business and how it can show up in a company's operations, product, and culture sometimes unexpectedly. Whether you're a leader of a company, team, household, or just yourself, we hope you walk away knowing the possibilities of impact for you and feeling inspired to take action every day. This is the Beyond Capital Podcast. And today's guest is Justin Norman. Justin is an American expat and entrepreneur living in Johannesburg, South Africa, and he's working to support the startup ecosystem across the African continent. Having learned very quickly that his Western lens and Silicon Valley style thought leadership isn't always the most contextually relevant for entrepreneurship in Africa, Justin began speaking to many practitioners across the continent to learn more about doing business there. This experience led him to The Flip, an editorial-style podcast and weekly newsletter in which Justin and his guests explore more contextually relevant insights and stories from entrepreneurs changing the status quo in Africa. He is flipping the script, questioning pervasive narratives about African entrepreneurship and challenging the applicability of Silicon Valley thought leadership. Welcome, Justin. So great to have you with us today. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. We like to have fun on the show, so we we will inevitably do that. But I want to start out by telling you that I'm a child who grew up listening to NPR against my will. And when I first heard the flip, couldn't help but feel like a child again, because I was being told a story in such a like journalistic way that was different than the stories I had heard, you know, being a VC in Africa and, and knowing a lot of the, the background of what you're talking about. And I found the flip to be so unique. So I'm so happy to have you here. And I, I would love for you to tell us what inspired you to start the podcast. Well, first of all, that praise is, I very much appreciate it. I don't know that we're NPR quality and I see the size of the teams when, you know, you hear about, you know, you listen to the end and they do the credits and the teams are gigantic, but um, no, thank you. That's very kind. I think to, to answer your question, I moved to South Africa in 2017 and was hanging out at the edges of the startup ecosystem. And as, you know, Ed shared in the intro, I, I learned very quickly that, you know, I didn't really know very much about you know, emerging market context, but I was deeply, deeply curious. And at the time, and, and still to some extent today, I think 
a lot of the insights that are talked about in the ecosystem are very high level, you know, a lot of stuff related to fundraising, but not really the depth that I was looking for. And so, you know, I guess like any entrepreneur, um, I scratched my own itch and I started a show really as a mechanism for me to learn and without much expectation about, you know, listenership or audience or anything like that. And just followed my curiosities in the podcast, you know, I'm sure you guys know is, is a really great tool to learn and, and a great tool to connect with people and to learn from your interviewees. So that's what I started in 2019 and have been doing it for, I guess, yeah, four years now. And what does it mean to challenge the applicability of, of Silicon Valley leadership if you're just diving straight in? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that it's necessarily an indictment on Silicon Valley leadership as much as it is just very clear to me that the context is different, right? And I think we hear that talked about in the African context and the emerging market context a lot about this, the importance of localization and about you know strategies that that work. And it was just very clear to me from early on that a lot of what people were talking about, you know, with an eye towards thought leaders in Silicon Valley, you know, many of whom you know should be revered for the big businesses that they've built. I mean, the the nature of the problems that people were trying to solve across the continent were just different. And I think in many cases that required then different models for success and, and, and different styles of insights that, again, were more you know, uh, contextually relevant or applicable to the context in question. What's an example of a model that's different in this yeah. context? I think a good one is just the physical nature of the markets in question. So I think a lot of the models that are talked about in, again, the sort of Silicon Valley style is you know zero marginal cost software businesses, right? Amazon's and well, Amazon's actually not a good example, the Facebooks of the world. Yeah. Whereas a lot of what we were talking about in the African context, the problems that were being solved were inherently offline in nature or physical in nature. Um, a lot of bringing technology to offline markets as opposed to a just purely digital economy or purely digital business. And of course, then when you're doing stuff physically, you know, the nature of the business models are, are substantially different and the nature of how perhaps those models should be funded are substantially different than, again, a, you know, a zero marginal costs B2B SaaS business, for example. And I know you said you've learned a lot. Is there any kind of standout lesson or any even, even lesson that you've learned that you've brought back into your own business that has come from your seasons of the podcast and your interviews? I mean, tons of lessons you know, related to businesses in general and, and the markets in, in general. I think the one overarching theme for me, though, is just about respecting these markets, right? Um, I think respecting the talent in these markets, you know, I'll, I'll speak for myself, but I think looking at less developed markets, you often might make assumptions about what that means for the people that are working in them, right? The quality of talent, for example, or the level of sophistication of the people that are working in it. And I think that none of that is true. There's just a lot of sort of infrastructure constraints in many cases. So for me, I think just the the learning journey was, you know, one in which I became deeply, deeply enamored by the types of problems that were being solved or that needed to be solved in these markets and then really impressed with and you know having a deep desire to learn from the people who are choosing to solve these problems in these markets. And the last session the last season was focused on the future of work. So you had deep dives into the future of work won't look like a job. The future of work is standardization. The future of work is vertical platforms. The future of work is needs training you know, the future of work is matching. I listened to all of these and I, I was really 
curious about how they played a role in our portfolio, but what stood out to you about that theme of the future of work that also made you focus on it? Yeah, I think the reason why I became interested in this question of the future of work, particularly in the African context, is just when you look at the macro trends on the continent, right? I think especially in the early stage investing space, we hear a lot about, you know, the population growth and the growing size of the middle class. And it's always purported to be a good thing, right? If the population is going to double the next 30 to 50 years, that's a great thing for market size and your TAM calculations if you're a, if you're a startup. But I was also looking at it as, well, where are the income generating opportunities going to come from or where are the jobs going to come from, right? So I think that question sent me down this rabbit hole and, you know, you brought up questions or or topics of like the future of work isn't going to look like a job. I think when you look at these markets, there's this blended livelihood, right? So there's, there already isn't formalized jobs, right? But people are earning a living through what they're calling a blended livelihood, right? They might have, you know, three different gigs or side hustles or something like that. And it struck me as really interesting and curious because I think we're also in the global context or in the U S context, seeing a lot of um, less formalization of work. So a lot more people are earning an income that's not necessarily tied to a traditional W-2 job either now with the rise of, you know, the gig economy or the creator economy, or just, I think post COVID people are being, you know, are less willing to just work for a traditional job. And and so I saw sort of those two things happening at the same time, right. And, you know, formal work becoming more informal while in the African context, we're trying to make informal work formal, right. I, I mean, I just went down the rabbit hole of trying to understand where these income generating opportunities are going to come from. I, th- I think it's a really important question in the context, again, of like global population trends, both, you know, on the continent and outside of it, where, you know, labor forces are shrinking in, in Europe. And yeah, as, as a subject matter, you know, I, I think I'm always looking to explore questions that I'm deeply curious about, but I think that this is a really important topic. And to be honest, a bit of an under-discussed topic in both the African and maybe not as much the African, but the global discourse in particular. Yeah. One, one thing that's interesting about that kind of gig economy, or, you know, maybe we can dive into this, you know, the idea that more people will be contractors or, you know, you can kind of just do shorter terms or shorter stints and that the nature of the company, the nature of the enterprise is changing. And I, of course that's happening to some extent, but the, the nature of transactional work, which is sort of what that is, is at odds with uh, long-term value creation. Meaning that if the return on investment cycle for a, a given endeavor is five years or 10 years. Let's take SpaceX as an example, you know, building rockets. It's, it would almost be un- unthinkable to have, you know, sort of like outsourcing the thought processes around how they're f- figuring out how to land a rocket, you know, back on Earth. Um, and the people who have been doing that have probably been at SpaceX for, you know, average of five years, 10 years, 20 years. To, to figure it out. And so when I look at the gig economy, I feel like anyone who who moves in that direction is going to is going to kind of almost by definition take themselves out of the out of the parts of the economy that create the most the most innovations that that require anything more than, you know, tw- 6 months or 12 months to achieve. Like if you're talking about a 3-year, 5-year, 10-year value creation cycle, carbon capture, fusion energy, rockets, AI, those are long-term endeavors and you can't outsource that. Mm-hmm. So I so I think that that trend is a dangerous one for workers to adhere to be, um, because they're going to commoditize themselves 
it would be, if I was a worker, I would more want to attach myself to a, like even your podcast is an endeavor that take, you know, the value is built over time. Right. Yeah. I couldn't outsource the guest. I mean the, 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 the host, we couldn't outsource the the host. Yeah. I, I, I don't disagree with that. I think it depends on the type of jobs in question. Right. Yeah. Of course, you know, core functions of a business aren't going to be outsourced by SpaceX. But I, I, I do think that what we are simultaneously seeing is that global employers are seeing an opportunity to tap into a global workforce. And that I think actually is a good thing for African talent in the context of, you know, domestic economies not creating enough opportunities for them. So again, it depends on the the type of jobs in question, but I tend to believe that it's a good thing that there's a greater willingness to hire global talent because again, the domestic economies aren't going to create enough opportunities for, you know, such a fast growing labor population on the continent. Yeah. I, and I, actually I completely agree with that. At Scoot, we, we do that. We have a team, a nearshore team, but we, we hire them as effectively as, as full-time long-term employees, which is where that kind of synthesis comes together. You know, so we definitely want to bring in talent from anywhere in the world, but we also want to do it in a way where those individuals kind of participate in and benefit from this long-term value creation because the, you know, rather than a a three-day or three-week engagement for helping us code something or helping us design something, you know, longer term creates more stability. So yeah, obviously all that's a big mishmash of a lot of things happening, but super interesting topic about how that will unfold. I share uh, similar sentiments about the sort of fragility of certain types of jobs, right, in the context of the gig economy. But I think one thing that is happening, especially, you know, post-COVID is a greater willingness to absorb global talent into a workforce, right? So rather than only hiring from the U.S. now, people are looking at, well, I could hire my marketing associate in Nigeria and actually have that be a core part of the team as opposed to, you know, I think outsourcing gets a bad rap and, you know, the gig economy, I think sometimes gets a bad rap as well, but truly global workforces, I think is a particularly interesting premise. Definitely. And as somebody who has a global workforce and also has seen the rise of the Indian economy, I I think as you point out with Africa and how it can play a role in Africa's economic rise is exactly happened exactly in India. So we saw a tremendous amount of outsourcing jobs and then the training of those workforces in technology who are now moving on from XYZ tech company, Google, this, that, and starting their own businesses and building innovation in their own countries. And that's what we're investing in at Beyond Capital Ventures or one of the things we're investing in, in at BCV. Justin, I have never said this on this podcast, but because you do have a new podcast on crypto, let's pivot to crypto. What is the theme of that podcast? Why is now the time to launch crypto at scale as a part of your work? I think I've spent the past few years with The Flip trying to tell better stories from across the ecosystem. And one of the things that I saw that was really clear was, you know, crypto and blockchain technology, especially during the bull market, had a lot of false profits or leaders that were giving it a bad rap and maybe deservedly so in light of some of the things that have unfolded. But what's really interesting to me is in the African context, there are actually 
quite interesting use cases that are happening in the context of, you know, non-consumption in the context of um, lack of infrastructure. And so, whereas in the US, I think a lot of people look at crypto like, well, why do I need to use this? You know, my bank works fine. That's not the case in African markets. And so, especially during the, you know, this market downturn, and I think a lot of the hype dying down, I co-host that show with um, MFS Africa's head of crypto, Guerra Kiwana, who's a you know a fantastic fintech and, and crypto operator herself. We just thought it was a great time to tell you know what we felt were pragmatic stories about what's happening from the ground from a, a use case perspective, and like the flip, just tell better stories about this space in particular. And from a use case perspective, what is emerging for you? We've seen a yeah. few business models using crypto to do cross-border transactions or make it easier for remittances. What's standing out? That is perhaps the most interesting one. You know, for me, just making payments across the continent is a really difficult challenge and, and sometimes can be expensive and, and slow and cumbersome. And so stable coins as a tool to make cross-border payments and, and to facilitate cross-border trade or remittances is, is a really interesting one. I think, you know, DeFi is is also another one from a from a lending perspective. You know, I think there's a lot of systemic barriers to SME lending and there's huge SME lending gaps on the continent. And there's a number of really interesting DeFi protocols that are trying to create yield for investors and tap into new sources as a capital to try and lend on to you know SMEs or other funds that are lending on to SMEs. Those are two of them. I, I think if there's one other that I'll say a third one is just, you know, in general, there's a there's um I think a lot of interesting opportunities, a lot of interesting opportunities about what happens if you put things on chain identity, for example. Land rights is a really interesting one in the context of of African markets in particular. I think that those sorts of use cases are very far away, but you know, it's interesting to explore those who are building in that direction. And I think again, a lot of the innovations in these categories are going to happen in African markets because again, the non-consumption and the lack of infrastructure is a particularly interesting opportunity for these types of technologies. East Africa was the birthplace of mobile money. And I can't really wait to see what comes out of the application of crypto DeFi to the fintech industry in Africa, because I think there are some creative applications that could come out of that. Yeah, it's interesting to think about the kind of pros and cons of trustless versus kind of trusted financial systems. You know, in the in the U.S., you use your credit card. If something goes wrong, you call up your bank, they fix it. Somebody can almost always fix anything for you, you know, that goes wrong. Um, those institutions, by and large, are Kind of trustworthy for that kind of stuff. The trustless, you know, is more like what you're talking about, where the institutions, you know, are slow, expensive, unreliable, or the governments are inflating currency too much, you know. And so, like in these trustless environments, where where trustlessness is, has a higher, you know, value, then you know, we see these models emerging, and I think that that's what you'd expect to happen. But then the question is, after that, if I was a citizen of Africa, would I rather have trustless? infrastructure in fintech or would I rather have a trusted one and what are the benefits of each of those and so that's kind of an interesting thing to to watch over the next you know five to ten years does a financial system that emerges from a trustless set of technologies like crypto in Africa does it become more utilitarian than a trusted one like you know like in a U.S. economy or does it convert to a trusted one, you know, because there's more benefits yeah. on the trusted one. So that's that has a lot of implications for crypto investors and the companies, but kind of interesting to think about which one is better, actually. 
Yeah. I think that there's a lot of, there's certainly a lot of people in the crypto ecosystem who believe in, you know, completely, you know, fully decentralized systems, right. And think that that or hope that that is the future. And I think what we see in the African context, you know, just from a user experience perspective is that that's not necessarily realistic. And so I think the question is, you know, from a user experience perspective in particular, what sort of blend of, you know, there's um, a term that's that's often used in the crypto space called the DeFi mullet, where it's uh, fintech in the front or easy to use user experience in, in the front and, and DeFi or, you know, crypto or blockchain enabled technology powering it in the back end. And what um, <laughs> what are the opportunities for that? It's 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 not um, that's a new one for me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So the play on the, right, the party in the front. Uh, yeah, exactly. Or, business business um, on top. Business in the front. Yeah. Business in the front party <laughs> yeah. in the back. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I think that, you know, again, that's not, you know, many people's utopian vision for what crypto is, but, you know, if we're talking about solving real world problems in the African context, I think that that is a way forward that is meaningful. And so I think a lot of people who are doing the work in these ec- ecosystems are, are um, sort of adopting those sort of approaches. I agree. As a fintech investor, I, I agree. I think there's a plug in because there is no trusted system that exists. And then think about, you know, how many countries are in Africa. So you would actually have to create 54 trusted systems. And that is virtually impossible. But the plugin of DeFi, of crypto kind of oriented tools around remittances and transfers, I think can be extremely powerful. And I, I believe that part of our trusted system, Ed, is that banks are too big to fail and the government will always back them in the U.S. And I think it is a fundamental part of our economy, which we've seen repeat in history. And that is just not the case in the well, markets. Well, uh, yeah, but the question is fundamentally, fundamentally good or fundamentally bad. I, I, I would say fundamentally good. Like in, in decentralization, you know, if it's a super simple decentralized call it schema, like Bitcoin, meaning that it's relative, what it's supposed to do is relatively simple compared to many of the other protocols. And so, you know, it, it's decentralized, it's, it's resilient and it's proven, you know, but when you take the, you know, other things that are kind of built around it, you know, you have, you know, different exchanges or different, you know, if they, if the designers of the decentralized system made a mistake, then at some point that mistake would get exploited or would be exposed, right? And so we're counting on decentralized systems to be designed without errors in them. Because if there were errors, you know, they'll break. And if they break, by definition, there's no one to come in and fix it. So then you either have to have massive kind of, you know, kind of have to spread out your bets across many, many different aspects of crypto so that if one of them breaks, you're kind of diversified. But in the case of Silicon Valley Bank or First Republic Bank, where I was a customer, the bank fails and the regulators come in and you wake up Monday morning and now you're part of JP Morgan. And to me, that's a lot better than like ending up with zero, which is what happens if there's no centralization. So it's, it's, I'm, I, I have lots of crypto. I'm, I'm a crypto bull, more just kind of pulling that apart, decentralization is often used as a platitude, almost like it's obviously good. But if it's, if there's any errors in the decentralized system, who fixes it later? Unless we think that human beings can design something without errors, 
decentralization has a uh, what I would call a first order problem. Yeah, and and I don't think yeah. though that a lot of users across the continent are thinking about it through that paradigm, right? So you just gave the example of deposits being securitized by the the government, but that's a very like U.S. centric scenario that isn't. You know, a lot again, back to my point earlier, a lot of people in the US say, well, we have centralized institutions that work, so why do we need crypto? And I think what we're just seeing on the continent is that the centralized institutions don't work and or there are right. glaring gaps and people are turning to crypto for that reason without thinking about a level of decentralization or any and in fact I think most people are are using centralized exchanges, right? So I think a, a DeFi maximalist would say, you know, you should be using a non-custodial wallet, but a lot of people are turning to Binance or, you know, other local exchanges just because it provides the easiest user experience, but they're turning to it because, you know, the use of crypto or stable coins for cross-border payments, for example, is a problem that banks aren't solving, right? And there's a, there's a gap. And, and so, yeah, I, I think our desire to like explore this topic as, as um, you know, one for inquiry is, is I think less from a sort of like theoretical question about whether decentralization is good or bad and more from well we're seeing these use cases on the ground because there are gaps that are being filled by crypto and blockchain technology definitely so justin before we get into rapid rapid fire i want to ask you do you see yourself as running a business with the flip and crypto at scale that's a very good question it didn't start as a business i think it started as a mechanism for me to learn, right? Almost like a revenue generating hobby. And as we, you know, made money and had partners and as our audience grew, I think I was always sort of faced with this question about, do we grow it into a business or does it just become a sort of side hustle of sorts? And that there is a, a perpetual tension, I'll be honest, that I have not been great at addressing as well. It is a business and I run it like a business, but maybe with a little bit of sensitivities sometimes, right? I guess as any sort of small business entrepreneur or, or um, yeah, there, there becomes a point where, you know, the business grows from just you to other people. And at least in my experience, it's been a challenge, like for many other entrepreneurs to uh, bring in other people and let go of a lot of things. And that, that tension or that growth as an entrepreneur is uh, one that I perpetually working through, let's say, but it is a business and I, and I treat it like one. Aren't I think we I've all? Gotten. Yeah. <laughs> well, no matter how many responsibilities you give to other people, you will still always have that butter smooth voice. <laughs> mm, it's just the microphone. That's something you both have in common, Ed <laughs> <laughs> and Justin. So, Justin, let's get into rapid fire. We want to get to know you a little bit better. First question is what book is on your nightstand right now? Right now, I'm in a like sci fi and fiction phase. Oh. So, I am reading Foundations, the trilogy by Isaac Asimov. Oh, wow. I don't love it, but um, I, I tend to read books to completion anyway. Um, I just, pr right prior to that, read a couple of other ones. I read Ready Player One, which was ironic because now the Vision Pro kind of look from Apple looks looks like the headset that they were playing in. But uh, yeah, sci-fi phase right now. What is your go-to beverage in the morning? Coffee, tea, or caffeine-free? Coffee, definitely. And in yes. the afternoon too. Do you alternate coffee and tea every other day? No. <laughs> he's, making fun, he's making fun of me. Do you do that? What I've been doing. Who, who do does that? Who does that? I did. 
I did a program <laughs> called the Hoffman process where I, I thought deeply about what makes me my best self and coffee showed up as something that might be a little bit too much of a smooth over of my feelings and emotions. Yeah. I alternate. And, and, and what was the experience taking a day off coffee? Did, every you, every other day. Be beneficial? Every other day. She switches off every, yeah. every other day. I'm on a tea day today and I'm, I'm still surviving. I, I do. I feel that I have, I think, I actually think I have uh, the ability to tap into creativity a little bit more, le- more feeling, less doing. Okay. I'm going to try it. Maybe I should try that. Yeah. yeah. I think you've convinced me. Yeah. <laughs> Report back. Justin, well, name something that's giving you hope right now. This is a little bit counterintuitive because there was a lot of, I think, concern around the integrity of the elections, but Nigeria has a new president and he's kind of coming out of the gate, making a lot of changes that are seemingly positive for the country. They just removed this, the central bank governor. They are floating the exchange rate. Um, they're making a lot of changes that I think people in, in my world and, and a lot of people that I work with are excited about. So, you know, temperate in, encouragement, but I think Nigeria is a really important country in the African context and we want to see it thrive to the best of its abilities. And it seems like there is potential for that. And I'm excited by that. What's one trend you're watching right now in African entrepreneurship? There's a lot of questions about fundraising and, and growth strategies related to fundraising. I think there's a, been a lot of reflection about where the ecosystem is in light of a market downturn and in light of higher interest rates in the U.S. And so I'm interested in seeing what happens there. I know some companies are struggling. I think we'll expect to see some consolidation, which is actually kind of exciting and, and maybe um, a positive thing or, or something that's overdue for the ecosystem. But I think it is compelling a lot of people to, you know, take a step back and think critically about how they're approaching their business, which I think is always a good thing to be doing. Cool. Aside from your own, what's your favorite podcast? I modeled the flip after Freakonomics. So I tried to really just emulate that format. Um, I don't listen to it so much anymore. Right now, I'm really loving a podcast called Acquired. It's uh, yes, a story of acquisitions and, and business stories of just two people who I guess are um, really great storytellers and, and nerds. And it's like three hour long podcast that I thought I'd never listen to, but I'm really, really enjoying. So that's, that's one I would say is a favorite right now. What's your favorite way to unwind? I'm probably not as good as I should be, but um, travel you know, travel can be hectic, but I, I enjoy sort of getting out of the routine and going to new cities and, and meeting new people. Um, so that's one, or just, you know, sitting on the couch with my wife when we're, when we're in, in Cape Town. Aww. What is one piece of advice you would give to your younger self? Have a bias towards action and stop overthinking things and you'll figure it out. But the only way to figure it out is in the real world and not in your head. Last question. What is one piece of advice you would give to our audience who might be thinking about launching a business. Similar to the advice I just gave my younger self, go for it and and stop thinking about it and go do it. And um, the answer to whether or not you should launch a business or if you're thinking about it, you know, the only way to find out whether you're any good at it or whether it's going to be successful is by actually doing it. Couldn't agree more. So just to wrap up, what mark will the flip and you and the work that you're doing leave on the world, what are you hoping for? You know, I, I really feel 
that there are a lot of great things happening on the African continent and really great stories to tell. And, you know, I feel privileged that we have a platform to tell stories from across the continent and to whatever extent or degree we are able to you know, get people to pay attention to what's happening here or to convert intrigue into action or to inspire somebody to pay attention to the continent or to do something on the continent. Yeah, I don't want to sort of overstate our role in all of that, but I, I, I think the extent to which we can contribute to any of those things is is meaningful. And for anyone listening or for anyone overseas, I think they should definitely be paying attention because there's a lot of amazing entrepreneurs here and a lot of fascinating stuff happening here. And if they want to learn, certainly we would encourage them to go and listen to the flip. Absolutely. I'm about to go and make sure that I re-listen to the flip. And there's a lot of content in there. Thank you so much, Justin, for being a guest on the show. It's been an incredible conversation. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It's not, I'm not used to being on the other side of these uh, interviews, but uh, I hope I did. Okay. It was great. Thank you You so much. It was great. And it was fun. Once again, it's clear that conscious leaders can find a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company in a truly holistic way, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me at EA Stevens on Twitter. And you can follow me at Conscious Investor on Instagram.